You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abal Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him, and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen, 
and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 793 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, January 11th, 2024, and we just read 1 Kings chapter 19, following up with more about Elijah, the prophet of God, and his confrontation and the fallout of his confrontation with Ahab and the prophets of Baal in the previous chapter. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out. We did the whole episode on just 1 Kings chapter 18 because there's a lot there. There's a lot there that we can learn from and benefit from. And in this episode, I actually want to follow up on a few threads that perhaps <laughs> it will be fruitful. One being, why is it a thing? that we would call, or in previous decades or previous generations, they would call a woman a Jezebel if she was a particularly scandalous woman, a woman of bad character. What does that mean? Where does it come from besides just that there's a gal named Jezebel in the Old Testament here in First Kings who is not particularly nice? What's going into that calling a woman a Jezebel and should we ever call a woman a Jezebel? If we ever liken a woman to Jezebel, is that a faux pas? Is that bad form? Is that discourteous? Is there something in our thinking about men and women that catches us off guard when it happens to be that a woman who gets to a position of prominence and authority behaves very badly and becomes very dangerous? Is there something about that that we just want to avoid We'll talk about that in this episode. In addition, we'll talk about some threads that connect, I think, our current present circumstance to what Elijah's circumstance was in 1 Kings chapter 19. How can we find him relatable or how can we understand how he's relating to God and his circumstances better as we consider our own circumstances? All of that and more in this episode. But first, let's talk about the passage. And let's appreciate that it starts off with the very last bit of the previous chapter having been that Elijah went up on the mountain after the showdown with the prophets of Baal. He's essentially praying, and here comes a storm cloud. And so he sends word to Ahab, you might want to leave now, and get ahead of the storm because it's going to be a big one. And then he gets up and he runs ahead of Ahab to beat him to Jezreel. 
And you might expect that there's going to be some kind of a confrontation in Jezreel. You might expect that. There does not seem to be any actual confrontation, or at least it's not written down. It's not recorded. Instead, what happens is as if Ahab totally bypassed, totally snubbed Elijah, Ahab goes to talk with Jezebel like he's going to let her know what just happened so that she's going to take care of it or she'll have an idea. She'll know what to do. As in, she's a driver of what has changed in Israel. It's not just Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel together have accomplished this purge of the worshipers of Yahweh, the prophets of Yahweh, tearing down the altars to Yahweh in Israel and reestablishing the worship of the old Canaanite deities. Together they have done this, but then this Ahab going to Jezebel to tell her about everything that Elijah had done and then her taking matters into her own hands perhaps gives a clue that it was really her all along. Ahab was more of a figurehead, but she's the real spine. She's almost a regent, and he is just the figurehead. He's just the king who does what it is that she wants him to do by and large. When he's out of ideas, when he's feeling all shook up, he's going to hand it off to her like she's his mommy, and she's going to handle it. And so what does she do when she finds out from Ahab what it is that Elijah has done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword? Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, which is a backhand to any reference to Yahweh whatsoever. She's still stuck worshiping the gods. She is a pagan through and through. She's not shaken one bit in her commitment to Baal and Asherah and the whole pantheon of Canaanite deities. But she says, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, you're going to pay for that. It's going to cost you your life. You're going to regret that you did this to the prophets of Baal in very short order. This is not an empty threat. She's the kind of a woman who does carry through on her threats. She does follow through on her threats. She is the kind of woman who means it, and she has a track record for meaning it. And oh, by the way, remember in the previous chapter how Elijah, when he saw Ahab, or Ahab saw him again for the first time in three years, many days, That was one of the things that he said to Ahab was that there were 400 prophets of Asherah who dine at Jezebel's table. Think back a few generations at how the queen of Sheba came to inquire of Solomon, to test Solomon, to see whether Solomon really was so wise as had been reported to her in her land. Remember how there was this accounting of People coming from all the nations of the world and then being fed at Solomon's table and just how much food was required on a monthly basis by the various governors who served under Solomon in Israel. 
they each had a certain requirement that they would make sure that all the food was there, all the foodstuffs, but also every other matter pertaining to showing hospitality to these foreign envoys. Well, that's how it started. But by Ahab and Jezebel's day, this is just a beeline from the queen, instead of it being 700 wives and 300 concubines who lead Solomon's heart astray from worship of Yahweh into the worship of other gods, the gods of the nations. It's just Ahab and Jezebel, apparently, and Jezebel really is the one in charge. And instead of it being envoys from all the nations, it's just straight up the prophets of the Canaanite deities. That's just cut to the chase. That's what it's really about at root. Instead of having the middleman of the foreign nations, and you go through the foreign nations to get to the idolatry, let's just cut to the chase and let's just get right to the idolatry. That's how Jezebel operates. And that's part of what makes her such a force to reckon with in Israel, that she has this association of herself with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. And so she takes this as her mission to execute vengeance on Elijah for what he has just done to the prophets of Baal. And what is Elijah's response? And this is the most curious thing, except it's so believable. As bold as Elijah was confronting Ahab, as bold as he was confronting the 450 prophets of Baal, as bold as he was addressing the whole nation of Israel, asking them how long they were going to go limping back and forth between two different opinions. If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. But you need to decide who is actually God instead of some days I worship Yahweh, some days I worship Baal. Some days I worship both of them in the same day. As bold as Elijah was, all it takes is a message from Jezebel and he is afraid. This shakes him. And I don't think this is just Elijah. I think this is a lot of men. And I don't think it's particular to, let's say, American evangelicalism today, because this is much talked about. Let's just be honest. Much talked about in America today is how feminism has affected our fellowship in our churches and the way that our dynamics play out in denominations and networks of churches, Christian publishing, Christian movie making, popular American evangelical Christian culture is undeniably affected by feminism. Whether it's a rejection of feminism and we say, nope, nope, and that's typically when it's a more direct rejection, that's on the fringes. Whether it's just a, let's try and accommodate just right up until the line, even if we have to change what we call certain positions of authority, we'll call them something else so that we don't have to admit that we're just ignoring biblical teaching, biblical truth on these things. And then increasingly we'll ask, well, why even the song and dance? Why don't we just ordain women to be ministers? Why don't we just call them pastors? They're so gifted, some of these women. You don't want to deny their gifting from God, their gifts that could edify the church. It's just you. It's not the scriptures. You're just interpreting them incorrectly. If you think that women are not supposed to be pastors and on and on it goes. And besides official capacity as pastor or leader or director or manager or whatever we want to call 
women being put into positions of official leadership in churches and denominations and publishing companies and movie making companies and Christian corporations or corporations that are led prominently from the front by vocal Christians, whatever we want to call the positions of official leadership, the dynamics due to complementarianism, having tried to flatter and court, really, feminism, while also not completely rejecting that there's a distinction between men and women in Scripture, because you can't, with a straight face, completely deny that. That strains credulity. The dynamic between most men and most women in the mainstream of American evangelicalism generates quite a lot of discussion about, have we made effeminate the men in our churches? Do we ask the men in our churches to become less masculine, less manly in a biblical sense? And do we say that that's how we're going to define Christian virtue? A godly man, a man who's really being like Jesus, is a man who defers to all of the women around him all the time or as much as possible. He doesn't ever actually exercise authority or command respect. No, no, he just serves. Servant leadership means if he ever says, you're being disrespectful right now, or I instructed this and that's not what happened and here are repercussions or here are consequences. If he ever is threatening in any way, even just to be frustrated, to be disappointed, to express his disappointment, his disapproval, there's quite a lot of discussion in the mainstream of American evangelicalism as to whether he should be rebuked from the pulpit or in private conversations. If we say, well, he just isn't a very mature Christian, that's just toxic masculinity. However, we may be inclined to quibble about what to make of these things in our day. It's worth noting that Elijah, as bold as he is, as undeniably good and praiseworthy as it is, that he confronts Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the people of Israel in chapter 18 here. Nevertheless, he wilts when he gets a message from Jezebel threatening his life. And I think this is no temptation that has seized him in the text, but what is common to man. And it's worth owning that. It's worth factoring that into our assessment of our own circumstance and our own reactions to things. That we would expect that at a certain point, really poorly behaved and aggressive and hostile and malicious women who don't love the Lord will exploit or prey upon men having been told and instructed and expected to not defend themselves or not protect themselves or not confront them or what have you. You should expect that women being people, if the egalitarians are right, that people are people and so you shouldn't give preferential treatment to men, shouldn't discriminate against women, well then in that case, it's fair game to be critical of women every bit as much as we are critical of men. And in that case, we have to admit that women can behave badly and they can be awful and they can be mean and cruel and they can be all of the things that men can be, I would say personally, they express it differently typically because of their particularities. But Jezebel here 
being more frightening to Elijah, I think, has to do with her being sinful first and foremost, not her being a woman. And yet her being a woman and wanting to take charge of the situation, having operated in such and such a way so as to commandeer the spiritual direction of the nation of Israel for some time now, she's not any less guilty. She's not any less deserving of condemnation because she's a woman. And that's something we've got to reckon with in our culture at some point, that it's not always the men's fault, or it's not always, first and foremost, chiefly and solely the men that we should be addressing. But yet, I think in Elijah's case, that he gets very afraid and runs for his life here, like it says in verse 3. I think it's instructive, personally. In any event, Elijah runs for his life, coming to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He leaves his servant there, and he goes a day's journey into the wilderness, and he sits down under a broom tree, and he doesn't kill himself, okay? But he is, you might say, having suicidal thoughts. He wants to die. He despairs of life itself. He is so afraid. But then I think he is being fatalistic, like, I'm going to die by Jezebel's hand or by somebody that she sends, by the people of Israel finding me and handing me over or doing to me whatever it is that Jezebel has instructed. She's a powerful woman. She knows how to reach people and make it look like it just happened, right? When they least expected it, they were alive one day and then the next day you find out they're no longer alive. They're unalive. And perhaps she's a very cruel commissioner of assassins and she, having special venom for Elijah, added additional details or maybe it was just known that it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be clean you're going to suffer before you die. In any event, he's very shaken by this. He goes a day's journey from Beersheba after leaving his servant there, and he wants to die. And he says to God, asking that he might die, it is enough. Now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, there's more to it than just his fear of Jezebel. And I think we see this. It's a complicated and very confusing place that Elijah is at. On the one hand, he's afraid of Jezebel. There's no two ways about it. And reasonably so, humanly speaking, she's a scary woman. She's a ruthless, cold-blooded woman. But he's also ashamed of himself. And he feels as though this is discordant. And this is a contradiction inside of himself, that he was so bold and now he's so fearful. He went from a triumph to running for his life again. And that was not what he expected. What was he expecting? Should he have expected a quick turnaround the way that he did? That's a separate question. But his expectations for what was going to come immediately after the triumph over Ahab and the prophets of Baal did not match reality. And he says here, I am no better than my father's. As he's talking to God, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And that seems to me to be an allusion to the fearfulness of the majority of the rest of Israel, not just in this generation, but now for a few generations, maybe for several generations, that the majority of the men in particular in Israel have been 
so easily cowed like this, so easily manipulated, either intimidated or enticed by turn by women, foreign women as Jezebel is, but then in due course of time as idolatry and wickedness get mixed in with the daily life of Israelites, also Israelite women. But he says to God, take away my life. But then the next thing he does, and there's no answer (laughs) recorded between his saying this and the next verse, verse five, he lies down, he sleeps. He's just exhausted. Does somebody need a nap? I think you need a nap. Elijah, you've been really busy lately. Maybe just take a nap. But then the next thing, an angel touches him and says, arise and eat. Verse six, he looks and here's a cake and a jar of water. Thanks, angel. Thanks, God. The angel of Yahweh, it says, verse 7, came again a second time. And I believe that this is, as in many other cases in the Old Testament, actually the pre-incarnate Messiah, Jesus, in the Old Testament, coming directly to Elijah. So who's making him the cake and who's bringing the jar of water Who's ministering to Elijah directly here? I believe it's Jesus. I believe it's the Son of God when it says the angel of Yahweh here. But the angel of Yahweh comes again a second time, which is to say that he came the first time. It wasn't just any angel. It was the angel of Yahweh touching him and saying, again, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. As in, you've got a lot of work ahead of you. And it's funny, speaking personally, how having work ahead of you, having a purpose, knowing that God has a purpose for you, can totally shift you from despair to being even keeled again. Man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl makes much of men needing, not just men, women too, but men here is what we have in view, and I'm speaking as a man, and I'm thinking as a man. Men need a purpose, and they need to belong. And if they don't have those two things, they despair, and in hard times, they just give up and they stop even attending to the basic necessities. In the case of Elijah, his wanting to die, he's probably pushed himself to the brink and he's not been eating and he's not been drinking. He's been so stressed out and he wants to die anyways. And he's not actively taking his life. He's asking God to take away his life, but he's also pushing himself in such a way that maybe he'll just expire and that'll be of a piece with God having taken away his life. Perhaps, maybe, who knows? And yet God has other ideas and Christ, I believe himself, The angel of Yahweh brings him food, wakes him up to eat and to drink. Arise and eat. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Verse 8, it says, And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now next is pretty great stuff. All of it's great, but gripping and complicated and tumultuous is this narrative about Elijah. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Where? Horeb, the mountain of God. Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, And killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, the way Elijah sees this, with finite 
knowledge. He knows what God tells him, obviously, and God knows everything, but God doesn't necessarily tell him everything. God tells him enough, and it's to Elijah's credit that he believes what it is that God tells him, and he does it. That is righteousness. But as far as Elijah knows, he's the only prophet of Yahweh left, and he may not be around much longer because they're trying to find a way to get at him and to kill him. That's why he ran for his life. That's why he's in hiding here in this cave again. But why, right? Why do they seek his life? Because he's been very jealous for Yahweh. As he looks at what his nation, his people, Israel, God's people, God's nation, Israel, have done, it has burned him up. He has hungered and thirsted for righteousness, and therefore he has engaged the way that he has. And it's earned him no special love and affection from his countrymen or his government. Rather, they seek to kill him. God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And now what comes next is fascinating. And this is, again, why you should not neglect the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is, as I just said, in instances where we have the angel of Yahweh appearing and interacting, I believe that is the Son of God, that is Jesus. And so if you just skip forward to the New Testament because you just want to focus on Jesus, understand Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. John's gospel says, in the beginning was the Word. And who was the Word? Jesus. But what comes next is a demonstration for Elijah of how God operates. Behold, Yahweh passed by, verse 11, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So let's try this again, in other words. Now that you've just seen the distinction, the compare and contrast between some of the things that are so mighty and so impressive and so terrible, so much bigger and stronger than you are that happen around you, wind, earthquakes, fire, appreciate God operating in a low whisper. And let's have this conversation again. I'm going to ask you again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, to his credit, says exactly what it is that he said before, although I have to imagine he says it in a different tone of voice. And maybe he's hearing himself differently, even as he is speaking this differently, as he's contemplating what it is that God has just shown him of God's character, relative, what's happening in the world. Elijah says, again, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Yahweh says to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, that is, 
king of Syria, shall Jehu, that is, king of Israel, put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So God's got this set up to where between Syria and Israel and the successor to Elijah, justice is going to be done to those who are stressing Elijah out to the point that he just wants to die. But then there's more. If there's a despair and there's a loneliness that Elijah feels at, to his knowledge, being the only one left who is a prophet of God in Israel, whereas there were so many, or if Elijah is in despair because he thinks he's the only one left who still loves God, believes God, follows after God, serves God, God has news for him. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, on the one hand, you might say, wow, 7,000 is not very many compared with how many people there are in Israel. 7,000 is paltry. And yet 7,000 is 7,000 times as many as one. Elijah thought there was just one, him, himself, he himself. God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, which is to say everybody else apparently has bowed to Baal. It was part of their civic duty, they were told, by Ahab and Jezebel and those they empowered in the new Israel that was going to be on the right side of history, going back to the old Canaanite deities and the worship of them. Only 7,000 by this point had not bowed to Baal or kissed him, loving and submitting to Baal. But then that is to say, 7,000 have not. 7,000 have kept themselves blameless. And it's God who, just like he's able to hide and provide for and protect and guide Elijah, it's God who preserves and protects and hides and guides these 7,000. This is every bit as life-sustaining as the cakes that were cooked on the hot stones and the jar of water. This is every bit as restorative for Elijah, I'm convinced, as his going to sleep on Horeb, the Mount of God. Falling asleep, just exhausted, just completely depleted. He needs food, he needs water, he needs sleep, and he needs hope. And he needs to have this comfort and encouragement of who is God and also what else has God been doing besides just with Elijah. Is all lost? Is this it? Are we toast? Let me die. Take away my life. No, you have work to do. And the work that Elijah has to do apparently involves establishing a king in Assyria and establishing a king in Israel and appointing a successor who together will affect justice. At the very last here, verse 19, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? He returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke 
of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And so clearly, here's one of those 7,000. That's what I take away. But God had to tell Elijah who it is that he's looking for to appoint as a successor. Their names being so close, I'll admit, that's always confused me. I think it always will. It's fine, though. I'll be okay. You'll be okay if it confuses you too. And yet, the important takeaway is not how close their names are, but that Elijah goes from wanting to die, not taking his own life because he belongs to God. It's God's decision to make when Elijah's time is up. But he asks God, and he's very honest with God, that he is despairing of life itself, and yet God wants him to appoint a successor. And maybe that's a good thing for us to be thinking about as well. If you've lost hope because you're thinking only in terms of you and God and what's going on in the country, maybe you should be asking God what it is that he has for you to do. And does he have it for you to be investing in somebody who's going to be faithful in the next generation instead of thinking that everything is over and done with and stops at you? Maybe you should be asking God who it is that he would have you invest in to build them up so that they can serve God after you and alongside you. I'm convinced that every bit is nourishing and sustaining and invigorating as the food and the water and the sleep. Here, have something to eat and take a nap. <laughs> every bit as sustaining, perhaps even more so, is that purpose and that sense of belonging that comes with you're not alone. One, God is with you. Two, God has purpose for you to be with others who follow after him. Not just true in 1 Kings chapter 19. True there, but also true in our day. And this is common to man. If there's a temptation that is common to man, there's also a dynamic that is not a bug. It's a feature of how God has made us and how he gets glory for himself in and through us and with us. That's all for now on 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's do move on because, as I said, we have some other things to delve into in this episode. For instance, Jezebel. Wikipedia is sufficient for our purposes in getting something like a condensed, distilled, common understanding. What is palatable, at least generally speaking, to the left. What will they admit? You can find that typically on Wikipedia. If it's extraordinarily controversial, they'll try and skew it. But some articles on Wikipedia are safer than others, less hard to skew. In this case, it just is what it is. The Jezebel is in the biblical text, Old Testament and New Testament she's referred to. And let's read the Wikipedia entry for Jezebel. There are some spoilers here. If you haven't read the Old Testament, you don't know where this is going and you don't want me to give it away. Well, I'm about to. Spoiler alert, there will be some spoilers here for what's in store for Jezebel. Nevertheless, Wikipedia says that Jezebel was the daughter of Ithobaal, the first of Tyre or Tyr. She was also the wife of Ahab, king of Israel, according to the book of Kings of the Hebrew Bible. According to the biblical narrative, Jezebel and her husband purged the Yahwist cult. 
It's an interesting way to think of it. I would say they purged those who followed after Yahweh. But it says here, Jezebel and her husband purged the Yahwist cult so that Baal and Asherah worship could be institutionalized. This caused irreversible damage to the reputation of the Omride dynasty, who were already unpopular among the Yahwists. For these offenses, Jezebel was thrown from a window to her death. Her corpse was trampled by Jehu's horse and then eaten by stray dogs, just as the prophet Elijah had prophesied. Oh, by the way, the Omride dynasty, those were the kings and the rulers. That was the house of Omri, a ruling dynasty of the kingdom of Samaria, founded by King Omri. Their dynasty ended with the conquest of Samaria by the Neo-Assyrian Empire. That'll come later. But Jezebel meets her demise, being thrown from a window to her death, and her dead body is trampled by Jehu, who we were just reading about, as God is giving a mission and a purpose to Elijah and correcting his despair with what it is that God has for Elijah to do and what it is that God is going to do through these people. There are two kings that Elijah is to anoint, one a king of Syria, the other a king of Israel. Jehu is the one who will be anointed king over Israel. His horse will trample on Jezebel's dead body, that being symbolic of the contempt that she richly deserves for her evil, for her crimes, not just her personal crimes, but the ones that she commanded others to commit. And then her dead body is eaten by stray dogs. And that is prophesied in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. Later in the book of Revelation, Jezebel is symbolically associated with false prophets. Meaning of the name. This is interesting. Jezebel is the anglicized transliteration of the Hebrew. Isabel, the Oxford Guide to People and Places of the Bible, states that the name is best understood as meaning, where is the Lord? A ritual cry from worship ceremonies in honor of Baal during periods of the year when the god was considered to be in the underworld. Alternatively, a feminine Punic name noted by the Corpus Inscriptionum Semitacarum Phoenician may have been a cognate to the original form of the name as the Israelites were known to often alter personal names which invoked the names of foreign gods. Instances of Baal can be found in Mephibosheth and also Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was also known as Eshbaal. Interesting that. But where is the Lord? That's what her name meant. And her name is not just a reference to Baal, but her name is also a reference to their rhetorical question in reference to his being in the underworld. Very interesting. Now, for comparison, by the way, Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So on the one hand, you have Yahweh is my God. And on the other hand, you have a reference to the cultic practices of the worshipers of Baal. Biblical account. Jezebel is introduced into the biblical narrative as a Phoenician princess, the daughter of Ithobaal, the first king of Tyre, or Tyre. First Kings 16.31 says she was Sidonian, which is a biblical term for Phoenicians in general. According to genealogies given in Josephus and other classical sources, she was the great aunt of Dido, queen of Carthage. Now, that's fascinating. 
as the daughter of Ithobaal I. She was also the sister of Baal Eser II. Jezebel eventually married King Ahab of Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. Dido, just a fun fact here for any of you civilization players out there, Sid Meier's Civilization, a very popular series of PC games, strategy games. The Civ Six faction leader for Carthage or for the Phoenicians is Dido. So she's a big deal. I didn't realize that Dido, according to Josephus, was so closely related to Jezebel. But that is to say that Jezebel is not just important in the biblical narrative. Part of how she is flexing as queen consort in Israel has to do with her being a princess in her own right, a Phoenician princess in her own right, and also apparently the Phoenicians feeling their oats and believing that their culture is ascendant and dominant. And part of how they're going to flex on Israel is to drive out the worshipers of Yahweh, to replace the worship of Yahweh with worship of their own gods. So this is culture war. It's a foreign culture, a foreign religion, but also it was common to the land of Canaan prior to God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, 40 years, and then conquering Canaan because it was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever, hundreds of years prior. Back to Wikipedia, Near Eastern scholar Charles R. Kremolkov proposed that Psalm 45 records the wedding ceremony of Ahab and Jezebel, but other scholars cast doubt on this association. This marriage was the culmination of the friendly relations existing between Israel and Phoenicia during Omri's reign and possibly cemented important political designs of Ahab. Jezebel, like the foreign wives of Solomon, required facilities for carrying on her form of worship, so Ahab made a Baalist altar in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Joffrey Bromley points out that it was Phoenician practice to install a royal woman as a priestess of Astarte, thus she would have a more active role in temple and palace relations than was customary in the Hebrew monarchy. Translation, it was common for the Phoenicians to have women being very prominent in both religious leadership and civic leadership. It's not like Jezebel just has this as her own idea. She's following the custom of her people. But then that is to say, too, we should understand when it gets to be very popular in our day, not just for conservative Christians to be pushed out, pushed to the fringes of society and public life and mocked there, when it's not just that, but it's also simultaneously an elevation of the feminine mystique and a kind of sacredness to an earth goddess coupled with a regard for so-called reproductive rights as being sacred ground, we're getting closer and closer to a more explicit identification with the dynamic that saw Jezebel being able to move so openly and so publicly, not just against figures like Elijah, but also moving against figures like Elijah from a position of both civic authority and religious authority. As she sees it, she is a very prominent priestess of Astarte. And we know that the prophets of Baal, 
are under her protection, under her wing as she sees it, and that the worship of Asherah, who was the consort of Baal, was very near and dear to Jezebel. We know that from the biblical text. She's not just some woman who has strong opinions and strong emotions, and this happens by accident. No, this is very structured. It's very built out. This is very cosmopolitan. This is not just a domestic issue, given that she is a princess of Tyre or Tyr, a princess of the Sidonians or the Phoenicians. She's an international figure. She's somebody who represents the confluence of the corrupting influences Israel has to reckon with and has been doing a very poor job of reckoning with. Basically, Israel has just been going with the flow with whatever the nations want, preferring worship of foreign gods if that will allow for establishing a friendly relations with those nations following the bad example of Solomon that had the kingdom taken away from him in the first place. Never mind that the kingdom was taken away except for one tribe, Judah, being left to the descendants of Solomon. Israel is all the same still following after that pattern. And so even though it's a different line and a different lineage, it's the same problem. Preferring to be cosmopolitan, preferring to be a global citizen and open-minded on the right side of history, so-called, preferring to be so integrated with the global economy that out of fear of diplomatic fallout, strife in marriage between Ahab and Jezebel, incurring the wrath of Jezebel, and then being killed by whoever she would send after you or your associates, all of that together is a net that Israel is caught in. And so that's why the solution is similarly, as God is telling Elijah to anoint a new king for Israel in Jehu, to anoint a new king for Syria in the person of Hazael. If you think that you can confine your assessment of Jezebel to just her being a woman, and that's all that you really need to know about her is that she's a woman, and so we should be gentle, we should treat with greater gentleness, the person of Jezebel or people like Jezebel because they're a woman, understand that she's being put forward as the instrument of Israel's destruction as a nation dedicated to Yahweh. From an international standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a religious standpoint, she is the linchpin. And she is a willing instrument of her father, the king of Tyr. She's a willing instrument of the cult of Baal. In fact, she's a driver of it. And this is why when Ahab comes fresh out of the conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he goes and tells Jezebel. She's not nobody. She's not just acting on her own, isolated, without context. Her context is very geopolitical. And this is also how it is that Ahab is sending to extract oaths, like Obadiah was telling Elijah, oaths of kingdoms and nations and peoples, asking, is Elijah with you? 
Is he there? And then requiring them to swear oaths that no, Elijah is not here. We've not seen him. We don't know where he is. The Phoenicians, having this very important, very influential trade network, and by extension, being very wealthy, and by extension, being very powerful because you can just buy decisions, buy loyalty, hire mercenaries, hire assassins. You can bribe and threaten and extort who you want once you get to a certain level of wealth and the Phoenicians are there to maintain friendly relations between Israel and the Sidonians or the Phoenicians. Ahab will also leverage their network to find out where is Elijah, that we can get at him, that we can deal with him because he is opposing this transformation of the life of Israel, religiously and politically and economically. He is mucking it up. When there's no rain, by the way, and there's correspondingly a shortage of food in Israel, you have to understand that that is a response in kind to the lure of the Phoenicians, of the Sidonians, that friendly relations, even at the expense of their devotion to God and their identification as a people, friendly relations with the Phoenicians, with the Sidonians, with Tyr, brings tremendous economic benefit. And opposition to the Phoenicians is at your own peril. You oppose them at your own risk because they have a lot of money and they can buy friends and they can buy enemies for you, in other words. So don't cross them. Once Israel is in bed with Sidon, Tyr, the Phoenicians, they get the economic benefits, sure. God himself, through Elijah, causing it to just not rain anymore, works directly counter what is put forward as the chief reason to go along with this. If you're an Israelite citizen and it's been sold to you, that we have to make way for these Phoenicians, including especially Jezebel, and as Jezebel's cult of the worship of Baal and Asherah requires more and more and more accommodation. At the end of it, it's not just toleration to derive the economic benefit, it's don't tolerate worship of Yahweh anymore. Don't tolerate the prophets of Yahweh. The altars of Yahweh are offensive to Jezebel and to her prophets and to her religion, remove them from public view, destroy them, tear them down, kill them, whatever it takes. When God withholds the rains and therefore the growth of crops and therefore being able to feed livestock and therefore being able to feed the people of Israel, on the one hand, they're all the more dependent on the likes of the Phoenicians to get their daily bread. But on the other hand, that more overt dependence is going to be more of a wake-up call, more of a stark contrast with how they entered into this relationship in the first place, which was, this is an arrangement, this is a marriage of equals after a fashion. This is good for both parties. As Israel has less and less really to offer in the equation, except for trouble, say for instance in the person of Elijah, the contempt that the Phoenicians have for the Israelites will become more apparent the contempt that Jezebel has and Ahab will have on her behalf, not wanting to upset his in-laws or his wife in particular, 
the contempt that they have for the Israelites and how they view the Israelites as just a means to the end of continuing to enrich themselves and pamper themselves and flatter themselves, that becomes more apparent and it's like a mask being removed. And you see that actually it's not a pretty face, it's a very ugly face. And that makes it easier for those who would return, who would have their hearts turned back to God to make an informed decision. It's like breaking a spell. But then that's also why Elijah is hunted by Jezebel. That's why she sends the threatening message. She knows all this. She appreciates all this. She's not stupid. She knows what she's about. She's aware of the role she's playing in this as queen consort, as priestess, as princess. This is a direct threat to her whole point of being married to King Ahab in the first place. What Elijah is doing is a direct threat. And so he has to be threatened. He has to be removed if she can accomplish that. Now, interesting, returning to Wikipedia here, her coronation as queen upset the balance of power between Yahwism and Baalism. As queen, Jezebel institutionalized Baalism and suppressed the worship of other gods through massacre and sacrilege. Obadiah, a pro-Yahwist figure in Ahab's royal court, secretly protected the survivors of these purges in a cave. Some commentators observe that Jezebel's desecration of Yahwist altars would have normally been condoned since they were built outside of Jerusalem, which contravened the Deuteronomic code. However, they were overlooked due to Elijah's piety or Jezebel's improper motives. As a result, Elijah invited Jezebel's prophets of Baal and Asherah to a challenge at Mount Carmel. The challenge was to see which god, Yahweh or Baal, would burn a bull sacrifice on an altar. Jezebel's prophets failed to summon Baal in burning the bull sacrifice despite their cries and cutting themselves. Elijah, however, succeeded when he summoned Yahweh. And I don't like that, by the way. I don't, I don't like that way of putting it. He called upon Yahweh and Yahweh answered him. He didn't summon Yahweh like Yahweh is some genie. In any event, this impressed the Israelites. He then ordered the people to seize and kill the prophets of Baal and Asherah at the Kishon River. Jezebel retaliated by vowing to kill Elijah the next day, even embracing divine judgment on herself. If she failed to do so, Elijah fled to Mount Horeb, where he mourned the apostasy of Israel. After these events, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram Damascus, besieged Israel and threatened to capture Ahab's wives, including Jezebel, which is to say he had more than just Jezebel for a wife. Ahab refused and defeated him in battle. However, he spared Ben-Hadad's life, an act that was denounced by an unnamed prophet. The prophet also declared that Israel would be ravaged by the Aramaeans as punishment. Naboth, in 855 to 856 BC, Jezebel resolved a failed business deal between Ahab and a civilian named Naboth concerning a vineyard. To do this, she ordered the execution of Naboth and his sons. Under false charges of blasphemy against God and the king, commentators observed that the execution was performed according to the biblical guidelines so that suspicions of foul play could be minimized. After Naboth's death, his corpse was licked by stray dogs. His execution was criticized by Elijah, who prophesied doom for Jezebel's family as punishment. Three years later, Ahab died in battle. Jezebel's son, Ahaziah inherited the throne, but died as the result of an accident and was succeeded by his brother, Jehoram. Jehu later usurped the throne and killed Jehoram and his nephew, Ahaziah, who was the son of Jehoram's possible sister, Athaliah, and her Judahite husband, Jehoram. 
He later approached Jezebel at the royal palace in Jezreel. Anticipating his arrival, Jezebel put on makeup and a formal wig with adornments and looked out of a window and taunted him. Bromley says that it should be looked at less as an attempt at seduction and more as the public defiance of the queen mother invested with the authority of the royal house and cult to confront a rebellious commander. In his two-volume Guide to the Bible, 1967 and 1969, Isaac Asimov, <laughs> who'd have thunk, the sci-fi writer, describes Jezebel's last act, dressing in all her finery, makeup, and jewelry as deliberately symbolic, indicating her dignity, royal status, and determination to go out of this life as a queen. Jehu, however, remained unfazed and ordered Jezebel's eunuch servants to throw her from the window. Her blood splattered on the wall and horses, and Jehu's horse trampled her corpse. He entered the palace where, after he ate and drank, he ordered Jezebel's body to be taken for burial. However, only her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands remained. Her flesh had been eaten by stray dogs, just as the prophet Elijah had prophesied. Edwin R. Teal dates Jezebel's death circa 850 BCE. Now, about this, here's the question. That's Jezebel. Is it ever appropriate? Is it ever, is it ever acceptable to refer to a woman in our contemporary day as a Jezebel? And when would it be appropriate? And if it's not appropriate, why wouldn't it be? Well, back to Wikipedia, scrolling on down to the section titled Cultural Symbol. According to Jeffrey Brumley, the depiction of Jezebel as the incarnation of Canaanite cultic and political practices detested by Israelite prophets and loyalists has given her a literary life far beyond the existence of a ninth century Tyrian princess. Through the centuries, the name Jezebel came to be associated with false prophets. By the early 20th century, it was also associated with fallen or abandoned women. In Christian lore, a comparison to Jezebel suggested that a person was a pagan or an apostate masquerading as a servant of God. By manipulation and seduction, she misled the saints of God into sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. In particular, Christians associated Jezebel with promiscuity. The cosmetics, which Jezebel applied before her death, also led some Christians to associate makeup with vice. In the Middle Ages, the chronicler Matthew Paris criticized Isabella of Anguillem, the queen consort of John, king of England, by writing that she was, quote, more Jezebel than Isabel, end quote. In modern usage, the name of Jezebel is sometimes used as a synonym for sexually promiscuous or controlling women. The Jezebel stereotype is an oppressive image and was used as a justification for sexual assault and sexual servitude during the eras of colonization and slavery in the United States. In feminist interpretations and Bible scholarship, Jezebel is re-examined, of course. And for example, seen as unfairly framed, McKinley cited in Bellis, or her story falsified, Beach, or as a resource for womanist theology, Lomax. Citation needed. Now, what was I saying before about how feminism has affected <clears throat> the expression of Christianity in America? On the one hand, you have those who are just out-and-out -out feminists, and they'll say, I'm a Christian feminist, but then they reinterpret the scriptures in a very Jezebel sort of way. Ironically, of course, they want to say she wasn't so bad. In fact, she got rather framed. She was a scapegoat. Of course, they want to say that because that fits their narrative. But then which came first? They're being like her or they're liking her. They like her because they're like her, I think. Nevertheless, you have on the very far end of the opposite end of the spectrum, 
those who are very out and out with their opposition to anybody who would even remotely resemble Jezebel. And I would say this is the minority. And I would say that this minority is typically dismissed as misogynistic by who else? The folks on the far opposite end of the spectrum, the feminists who say that they're Christians and they reinterpret scripture to affirm their feminism. The pro-Jezebel folks have never liked the anti-Jezebel folks. And that's true all the way back to First Kings, where we've got Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But then in between, in the middle, I think you have the majority who would rather just not get into all that. Can't we just be nice? Can't we just come to church and not talk about issues of compromise? Can't we just not talk about trying to mix in multiculturalism? Can't we just talk about God in more general terms and leave the controversies of the broader community, broader society, the world at the door when we come in? But then that type, and I would say that's the majority of American evangelical Christianity, that type is also very similar to the people of Israel in First Kings. The majority of Israel has bent the knee to Baal or kissed Baal. Whether or not this physically happened, that they were literally kissing a statue of Baal because that was what was expected, almost like saying Caesar is Lord in Roman times, you have to participate or at least give some kind of an outward show of deference to the cult of the emperor in order to be regarded as a citizen in good standing. You're obedient, you're submissive to the state, to the governing authorities in that way, or you're not at all. Perhaps it was expected and required that Israelites would kiss a statue of Baal, or they would bend the knee to Baal. Perhaps this was a clever setup where the king and queen would make an appearance and behind or beside the queen would be a statue of Baal. And so as the people of Israel were required to bend the knee to Jezebel, they would also in turn bend the knee to the statue of Baal, except for a minority of 7,000 or more, depending on how many were killed, how many were put to the sword with the purge of the so-called Yahwist cult, as Wikipedia puts it. Perhaps there were at least 7,000 who said, if you're going to have me kneel to you, standing right beside or in front of a statue of Baal, I'm not doing it. Because in good conscience, I can't even bow in the direction of your statue of Baal. As you're a representative of Baal, you're representing the worship of Baal and Asherah. I can't bow to you or else I would be participating in false worship. A variation on this, I believe, is what happens later on in the Babylonian captivity where there's a golden statue of the king. Everybody, when the music plays, is required on pain of death to bow down and worship this golden statue of the king. And then later on, you have jealous advisors again, 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 using religion and religious differences and supposed broad-mindedness for the purposes of, one, flattering the king, issue an edict. Nobody for 30 days is allowed to pray to anyone except for the king. But then your real goal is to purge a rival in Daniel because you know he's not going to abide by that. He's going to break the law. He's going to disobey the king if the king gives that order that you're just talking him into. Something very similar is happening here with 
Jezebel, where to bow to her is to bow to Baal, who her name is a reference to the worship of. And the majority of Israel goes along with it and rationalizes it and downplays its significance relative their devotion to Yahweh, their devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who Elijah is there to remind them of. This is not foreign to us so much as we may suppose at first blush. This is actually very familiar. And I think it would play out very similar to how these sorts of things are playing out today in our culture, in our country, in our time, that on the one end you have those who are very explicitly pro-Baal, pro-Jezebel, pro-being on the right side of history and accommodating the gods of the nations and foreign cultures so as to get access to those markets or retain access to those markets and not offend their government and their gods. And on the other end, you have a fringe. You have a very, very small minority, vocal and hated for it and ostracized and pushed to the fringes and mocked there. And if there were an opportunity to completely remove them and completely once and for all silence them, it would be seized. And sometimes it is because they're not just a threat religiously, they're a threat politically because the current regime has justified their revolution on religious grounds. But then they're engaged in false prophecy and false teaching as they claim to know the future. Isn't it interesting that to make the claim that this or that revolution in sexual ethics or how we compensate or reward or even allow people to retain what it is that they've earned or whether we even call it them having earned what they've earned, that the revolution in regards to economics and sexuality and what we do to our children has been put forward in our day as being on the right side of history. But then that implies that you've seen the future, which implies that you're prophesying. You're not just making a claim about God and about the moral fabric of the universe. You're also making a claim to knowing that the future sees you triumphant and everybody who stands with you as successful and anybody who criticizes or holds back or opposes you as being trampled on, discarded, left to the margins, left behind. You're on the wrong side of history is another way of saying your history. Your way of thinking, your way of believing, your way of worshiping is history, which is to say we're here to kill your vision of the good life. We're here to kill your social imaginary. We're here to kill your political influence and, yes, your religious influence because it has to be one. You can't just limp back and forth between two opinions. At a certain point, you have to pick, and the majority of people want to forestall that decision as long as they possibly can until they're sure how this is going to shake out. They're sure that the coast is clear, that this isn't going to cost them financially. It's not going to put them in any physical danger. It's not going to be socially unacceptable. It's going to be politically correct. I think personally, that when you do have a woman out front being a spokesperson for a revolution in our sexual ethics, our religious practice, our view of the scriptures, going after individuals who perhaps there is a conflict of interest regarding a conflict with, a dispute with them, when you see women like that 
being very manipulative, very forceful, and trying to wield authority that is not appropriately theirs to begin with from God. And you see a lot of people being either bullied or bewitched by that show because it's novel, because it's new, because it's fresh, because we're in the mood for something different, because why not? Because they've been bribed and bought to go along with it. When you see that, I think it is appropriate to refer to a woman as a Jezebel. And actually what's interesting is front and center in the crimes of Jezebel, we don't find in the biblical text to this point, a catalog of her sexual sins. We find how she's wielding authority to purge those who love Yahweh and follow Yahweh and speak the words of Yahweh after him to the people of Israel. That's first and foremost, her sin. So when you find women like that in our context, I think it's appropriate to liken them to Jezebel. And I think that our hesitance to do any such thing or our recoiling from anybody who would do any such thing, even when the shoe fits, is just an additional proof that the majority of us are very effectively cowed for all the same reasons that Elijah, when he fears for his life and he runs for his life after getting the death threat from Jezebel, he despairs of life and he wants God to take away his life. He asks God to end his life. And he says, I'm no better than my father's. I think this is no temptation having seized him, but that which is common to man. When it affects our Christian faith and practice, it's no temptation that has seized us, but that which is common to man. And yet that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. And it doesn't mean that it's okay. If some woman gets up and she begins to portray herself as a prophet, and she's saying, I've received a word from the Lord, but it's bearing no relation no resemblance at all to the biblical text. It's not at all consistent with what is in Scripture. In fact, it reaffirms and reinforces the overall revolution in sexual ethics and even, yes, in our political and economic institutions. And she's saying, all of you have misunderstood what the Bible really says to this point, but I've received a special revelation from God. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. and." Is her putting herself forward as a prophet in the first place confirmed by her living a life of godliness and modesty? Or is this usurpation? Is this selfish ambition and vain conceit? I would say in so many cases I've seen, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's a woman wanting to grasp for power and believing that her identification with being a kind of priestess, being a kind of prophetess, will give her also access to the political power or the social power and influence that she desires. And when a woman is like that, even just to think of her as being in the same category as Jezebel is appropriate otherwise. Why do we have this unless it's supposed to be instructive? And why is it in the New Testament as well as descriptive of false prophets? That's a rhetorical question. It's here for our benefit, for our instruction that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't be like Jezebel. Don't be afraid of the likes of a Jezebel. Don't flatter the likes of a Jezebel. Maybe if you find yourself in proximity to a Jezebel, you should consider doing 
what Elijah did, which is hide yourself. <laughs> Just make yourself scarce, unless God himself says, re-engage. Otherwise, get out of there. That's what Elijah does. He just gets out of there. And God himself tells Elijah to get out of there. Go hide yourself by the brook. I will feed you. I will make sure you have water. I will protect you. That may be actually a pretty good explanation for what it is that we see with a lot of men pulling back, withdrawing from public life, as feminism has taken more and more of a share of the expression of political power and religious authority that may be a good explanation for how men have pulled back, that there are so many Jezebels and they've been affirmed and empowered by feminism to the point that even you have women who say that they are Christians and feminists, not necessarily in that order, portraying Jezebel as a victim. Oh, she was just misunderstood. She wasn't so bad. No, no, she is a byword for false prophets. And I guess... That includes you too. You want to identify yourself with Jezebel, you go right ahead, but it's ill-advised and you will regret it. As for me, no thank you. Now, moving on, and we'll touch on the remainder of these news items and current events topics in pretty quick succession. But first up, we've got Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire reporting January 10th. Chris Matthews calls rural Americans cult members who will vote their craziness if Democrats don't stop them. This former MSNBC host, Chris Matthews, was brought on to speak with Morning Joe, Mika Brzezinski. Matthews made the appearance during a panel discussion on Wednesday's broadcast, joined by fellow panelist and former Senator Claire McCaskill, Democrat from Missouri, as well as regular hosts Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, explained that if Democrats wanted to fight back on issues they cared about, they would have to make sure they voted in large numbers. Brzezinski began by setting the stage, noting that the Iowa caucuses were just days away and primary elections would begin just a short time after. McCaskill noted that caucuses could be awkward for those who are not supporting former President Donald Trump, particularly in more rural areas where he is more popular. Quote, if you are not on Donald Trump's bandwagon, if you're not a member of the cult, then you just stay quiet, she said, but pointed out just how difficult that could be when there was a caucus rather than a traditional primary. Quote, Everybody sees which <clears throat> which corner of the room you go to, um, who you are joining, end quote. Iowa is days away. New Hampshire is coming up. And Donald Trump, given this conversation even, is the clear frontrunner, Brzezinski prompted, turning the floor over to Matthews. Quote, you know, I think President Biden gave a good speech on Friday. I think he began the conversation about the Constitution and democracy. But I think he has to turn the corner and go to the next step. The reason we love our democracy, the reason we all love it is... If we don't like the government and they're doing something, we can do something about it, end quote. Quote, you know, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, there were the black, a majority of black, majority now, they voted. They were highly registered voters. They were more registered than the white people. You know why? Because they had Frank Rizzo as mayor. You had a law and order guy. And they said, this is the only way we can defend ourselves. You had, you had black lives. This is an early case of that. You have to defend yourself. You have to vote to protect your rights in the Constitution, end quote. Quote, the Bill of Rights was put there by Jefferson and Madison because people said the Constitution and democracy is not enough. We have to write in here our Bill of Rights, Matthews continued, adding, quote, and I have to, and voters have to get out there and say, damn it, if I'm a young person, if I'm a black person, if I'm out in the streets and I don't trust the cops, I got to vote that way. 
And if I am a woman, I want to protect myself in my own decisions. I've got to vote that way, end quote. Here we see the introduction of religious language, not for the first time, not for the last, but the introduction of religious language into our political process to describe those who vote for the political opponent in religious terms. They're a cult. Religious language is employed all the time and not for no reason because your vision of the good life is informed by your cosmology, your anthropology, and ultimately your theology. What you believe about God, what you believe about man, what you believe about the cosmos, and the moral fabric of the nature that is material external to you and that is material within you, all of that informs who seems good to you and who seems evil to you. And so this is at root a fundamental difference of religious convictions. And so they're describing people who overwhelmingly prefer Donald Trump on the Republican side to be the nominee for the Republican presidential candidate for the 2024 presidential election. The majority of Republicans are being described as a cult. But then that is to say, this is very similar framing of the disagreement and the political decision to what Wikipedia lays out happening under Ahab and Jezebel in Israel. They were notable, first and foremost, for their purging of the so-called Yahwist cult so that Baal and Asherah worship could be institutionalized. Let's frame those who disagree with our decisions and our paradigms who are opposing this, criticizing this, who are saying what we're doing is bad, let's frame them as fringe. Let's make them the fringe. Let's make that happen by punishing anybody who speaks for them, anybody who operates openly, publicly, representing that side. We'll call them the cult, and that's because we'll have a rather more global vision here. And we'll prefer foreign gods, any foreign gods, really, to the God of this people. So if you think about this purely in political terms, purely in economic terms, you're thinking far too narrowly. The Democrats reach for the word cult, not for no reason, because this is a religious difference. This is a theological debate playing out in political debates, political contests. Now, what's interesting too is if you take some of what Chris Matthews was saying about history of voters in Philadelphia turning out to replace a mayor who was so-called law and order because that's how they saw their own self-defense, replace somebody who was championing law and order. Now turn with me to Annie Oakley's post from November 10th. Yes, this is two months old at this point, but it's still timely for the purposes of this discussion. The Second Amendment is alive. Federal judge revokes ATF pistol brace ban in its entirety. Colin Noir has the deets. We're not going to play Colin Noir's video, but you can check it out in the link that'll be embedded in the description for this podcast episode. The point being, around about two months ago, this story broke that a Northern District of Texas judge had granted a nationwide preliminary injunction against the ATFs, that is Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, pistol brace ban. The ATF, a a federal bureaucracy that has far too much power, far too much latitude, uh, the ATF had 
change their minds about a component that goes on quite a lot of AR-15s in America. Millions of these have been sold and are owned and are on firearms. The ATF decided to change the rules and classify all of those pistol braces on AR-15s as SBRs and to thereby say, if you don't register or disassemble or destroy or turn in your AR-15s with this pistol brace on them, you are a felon. You own a firearm that is classified as an SBR, which you should have registered. You should have asked our permission to buy in the first place. You should have had to go through a lot more extensive background checks, and you should have had to apply for a special permit, a special permission from us, plus also giving us your address, letting us know if you move while you possess still this SBR. This, of course, had to be challenged in the courts because otherwise you would have millions of otherwise law-abiding American citizens who purchased and have owned and have enjoyed these pistol braces and the AR-15s that have them on the firearm. They would have been classified as felons and it would have been open season for the ATF and by extension, the Biden administration to go after those law-abiding Americans and to claim whenever they went after them, we're just enforcing our gun laws so that America will be safer. Now, what's curious is as much as the Democrats are opposed to law and order so-called elected officials in government, they are also very happy to turn right around and say, we're just enforcing the law. We're just making it possible for us to have an orderly society. You can't have an orderly society when there are mass shootings happening left and right. We have to go after those who violate the gun laws. Well, who wrote the gun laws? Who changed the gun laws? Who just arbitrarily changes the rules on the fly so as to affect a mandate to go after, by and large, disproportionately political opponents who are armed? And oh, by the way, if you think back to Judges chapter 19 and you realize that geopolitical conflict, a changing of the guard in your nation, in your land, in your country, so as to accommodate more of an internationalist vision, doesn't typically just involve the introduction of some new religious symbols, new religious figures. Oh, well, there's a prophet of Baal. Haven't seen one of those before. Oh, there's a altar to Baal. There's a house for Baal. Haven't seen one of those before. Interesting. No, no. It starts there. In due time, it turns into we have to silence those who are so critical and very opposed to publicly what it is that we're doing, how we're transforming the country, how we're changing the paradigm, how we're pursuing a vision of the good life that harmonizes our religion, our politics, our economy with the foreign nations. In due time, in First Kings, under Ahab and Jezebel, this means straight up murdering the prophets of Yahweh, those who identify themselves with Yahweh, those who are political opponents. Even later on, like the Wikipedia article talks about, you have Jezebel making a pretending of interpreting Old Testament law, God's law, even Satan quotes scripture, by the way, but interpreting God's law as a pretext for putting to death somebody with whom her husband had had a dispute and his sons, putting them to death for supposedly having violated the laws of God, Yahweh God. It's a false show of religion. It's a selective application of 
the law to go after political opponents. So also, this ATF pistol brace ban, classifying pistol braces as SBRs when installed on an AR-15, that was supposed to be a free pass for going after political opponents. Throwing them in prison, why? Because they're a felon now, right? But you can just selectively enforce the law to make examples out of people who maybe perhaps possibly are not just guilty of breaking that law, they're also at odds with you for some other purpose that you couldn't throw them in jail for being critical of you about. Not without a great deal of scandal. A federal judge striking this down and saying, nope, this is unconstitutional. That's cheered by those who actually really do honor the legacy of the founding fathers of this country, our Christian forefathers. But the Chris Matthews, Mika Brzezinski, Joe Scarborough, MSNBC crowd, who like to think of rural Americans who support and vote for Donald Trump as cult members, just like they'll say law and order is a dog whistle when it's a Republican who's getting tough on violent crime and drug offenses in the inner cities, they'll turn right around from having talked about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and we love the Constitution, we love the Bill of Rights, it's protection, it's protection of our democracy. They'll turn right around when it works contrary to what they want to do, and they'll trash Americans who are exercising their constitutional rights to own and bear firearms, to keep and bear firearms. And I think these things are connected. I think that wanting to remove people who are in the way of democracy, they approach gun control accordingly. Not just to go after politicians and political action committees, but to go after individual private citizens or to create a chilling effect. If we can't take the firearms and then leave you vulnerable, and there is precedent in American history for Democrats violently murdering Republicans, those who voted Republican in formerly Democrat-controlled states and jurisdictions, but also just roughing them up. Murdering their candidates, murdering those who conducted the campaigns, murdering officials who were helping to make it possible for Republicans to win. And this is part of the reason why it's very important for us to not give up on the Second Amendment. Because sometimes those who want to affect a religious revolution, a political revolution, economic revolution, straight up start murdering anybody who would criticize them, anybody who would contradict or confront them. And if you can't hide yourself at a certain point, and you would pick up arms to protect yourself and your family from such folk, well, they don't like that, right? They don't want you to be able to protect yourself from them. They don't necessarily want to kill you, but then they want you to be afraid that they might so that you just shut up already and you just stop saying that and you just stop doing that or else something might happen to you. At a certain point, if the ugly names don't do the trick, if legal harassment being hauled into court again and again and again, tied up in the courts to where you can't even run for office, you can't even run your business, you can't even live your life anymore, running your name through the mud in the media, if that doesn't work, at a certain point, they just skip to the part where they unalive you. And this is nothing new. And this is not particular to our circumstance. Actually, it would be really, really shocking when you survey history, when you survey biblical history and world history outside of the Bible, it'd be really shocking to not find 
this right around the corner for us as well. In fact, we have it in our own history, not so far back that this sort of a thing happens when there are very strong disagreements about the direction we should go due to differences in visions of the good life, informed by differences in cosmology, anthropology, and ultimately theology. Now, ever so briefly, that said, it's worth noting that it's not all the same, whether we're talking about Democrats and Republicans. It is not all the same as to who has more of a propensity to violence, where you will be more safe or less safe. You don't just flip a coin. Just because there's a fairly even split in terms of how many people in America vote Republican, how many people vote Democrat in any given election cycle, that doesn't mean that, say, for instance, violent crime statistics are an even split. Samantha Esqueras over at The Daily Signal posted a bit of reporting, a bit of news, November 4th, 2022, with the headline, 27 of Top 30 Crime-Ridden Cities Run by Democrats. She writes, a new report shows that Democrat policies in cities and counties are responsible for rising crime rates in their otherwise red states. The Heritage Foundation Today released a 19-page report titled The Blue City Murder Problem that includes analysis on crime data and explores who is responsible for rising crime throughout the U.S. The Daily Signal is Heritage's multimedia news organization, you should know. Nevertheless, quote, those on the left know that their soft on crime policies have wreaked havoc in the cities where they have implemented those policies. Authors Charles Stimson, Zach Smith, and Kevin D. Diaratna, who are scholars in the Edwin Meese III Center for Judicial and Legal Studies at the Heritage Foundation, wrote in the report. The authors continued, quote, it is not hard to understand why reforms such as ending cash bail, defunding the police, refusing to prosecute entire categories of crimes, letting thousands of convicted felons out of prison early, significantly cutting the prison population, and other progressive ideas have led to massive spikes in crime, particularly violent crime, including murder, in the communities where those on the left have implemented them. As of June 2022, the top three cities with the highest homicide rates include Chicago with 304 homicides, Philadelphia with 240 homicides, and New York with 197 homicides. The report also highlighted that 27 of the top 30 cities with the highest murder rates as of June 2022 were run by Democratic mayors, except for Lexington, Kentucky, and Jacksonville, Florida, which are run by Republican mayors, and Las Vegas, which has an independent mayor. More specifically, 14 of the 30 cities with the highest murder rates have George Soros-backed or Soros-inspired rogue prosecutors, the report said. Some of the prosecutors include New Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams, Milwaukee County District Attorney John T. Chisholm, Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, Cook County, Illinois State's Attorney Kim Fox. Quote, there were 2,554 homicides in those 30 cities through June 2022, in the 14 cities with Soros-backed rogue prosecutors, there were 1,752 homicides, representing 68% of homicides in the top 30 homicide cities in the United States. The report was written in response to another report released in March titled The Red State Murder Problem by Third Way, which is a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas, according to its website. When you remove the crime-infested homicide-riddled cities from the state murder rate featured in the Third Way study, you dramatically lower the murder rate for that state, upending their conclusions and exposing the piece for what it really is, a straightforward attempt at political projection dressed up as a study, the Heritage Foundation report said. All that is to say... They want to blame Republicans for what is 
actually a Democrat problem disproportionately. I'll play for you here, cut one of Hillary Clinton speaking on this during an appearance on CNN, and then I'll have some commentary. Here it is, cut one, take a listen. I want people to be safe. That's not the Republicans' argument, because of course, if you look at real crime statistics, which they're not interested in examining, uh, the states with the highest crime levels are states run by Republicans. That's just a fact. We saw that, you know, very clearly in the recent debate in Oklahoma for the governorship when the Democratic candidate said, wait a minute, you know, the crime rate in Oklahoma is higher than it is in New York, and nobody wanted to believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to solve a problem, whether it's crime, inflation, or anything else. They just want an issue. You know, when given a chance to govern, they don't want the responsibility. We saw that during COVID at the very highest levels of the Trump administration. So when they talk about crime, you know, they're just uh, trying to gin up all kinds of fear and anxiety in people. Okay, so stop right there. Stop, 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 stop. That's quite enough of our <laughs> resident Jezebel. Uh, an honest question, right? Aspersions aside, I really genuinely want to know, and if somebody finds a clip of uh, a Democrat of Hillary Clinton's persuasion answering this question, please let me know, because I, I genuinely am curious how somebody who's on the Democrat side of this, who's for gun control, answers the Daily Signal here and the Heritage Foundation study showing that if you take the Democrat-run big cities in Republican states, out of the statistics, it's a very different picture, right? 27 of the 30 top crime-ridden cities are run by Democrats. And so if you are going to say, we don't just look at the national statistics for crime, we look at the state-level statistics, and it's meaningful who is governor which political party is presiding over the state that has high violent crime statistics, high murder stats. If that reasoning follows, which of course the Democrats are comfortable with because they'll compare the violent crime stats and the murder rates for countries, the United States will be compared with other countries to see how are we doing. Then it's also by extension reasonable to say, we want to drill down deeper and we want to find out where are the majority of those murders happening, where are the majority of those violent crimes happening in Republican-led states. If the answer is in Democrat-led cities, then doesn't the logic have to remain consistent or how do you square that? Now, I may have once upon a time run across something approaching an answer to that question. And the claim was made by the apologist for the Democrat Party and the Democrat policies that, well, it's the lax gun control laws in the state that fuel the violent crime in those Democrat-run cities. If the Democrats had control of the state government, then the stats would be better. Well, that doesn't hold true in the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago. That doesn't hold true in the state of New York and the city that is also called New York, New York City. So how does it follow that when we're talking about Republican-led states with Democrat-run 
cities, the logic is supposed to change. And how can this be permissible that we would put all of the blame for everything bad that happens on Republicans and all of the credit for everything good that happens is reserved for the Democrats? Even just future good that would potentially happen, they argue, they suggest, if more of the same of their policies were implemented, they get credit for, they put that credit into their virtue tank to feel good about themselves and to purport to be the heroes of the story politically. But again, going back to First Kings chapter 19 and understanding the context that Elijah is in and what kind of a situation Israel is in where Ahab is king and Jezebel, the princess of a Tyrian king, her father being the king of Tyre or Tyr, she is presiding not only as queen consort, but also as priestess in the cult of Baal. Understand that the same sorts of political plays, the same sorts of arguments, the same sorts of allegations that were common in Elijah's day are also liable to show up in our day, in our context, and also that the same kinds of argument, the same kinds of contention that are common to our day were probably present in some variation, in some form in Elijah's day. And if you start looking at it in that way, you have to be careful to not read too much of our current situation into their situation, but you can't read nothing of our situation and our circumstance into their situation and their circumstance. When Ahab's first words to Elijah, seeing him after three years of no rain in Israel, God stopped the rains from coming. The very first thing that Ahab says to Elijah is that he is a troubler of Israel. If Ahab is saying that about Elijah, that's probably the talking point for Ahab and Jezebel with regards to all of those who worship Yahweh, all of the prophets of Yahweh, that was the pretext for killing them and tearing down their altars. To blame the worshipers of Yahweh for all of the trouble. And it's not hard to see how this would happen. If before Omri, before Ahab, you have a civil war in Israel between the kingdom of Israel ruled over by Jeroboam and his descendants, and then you have the kingdom of Judah, ruled over by Rehoboam and his descendants, you have unending conflict, ceaseless, persistent, entrenched, intractable war between Judah and Israel. And under Jeroboam, you have the making of these two golden calves and the crediting of having been brought out of Egypt into this land by Jeroboam, by the king, the crediting to those golden calves that he himself made. He made them so that he could shift the religious landscape of Israel so as to protect his power, his hold on the throne from being threatened by Israelites going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of Solomon. Going back to the temple in Jerusalem, he feared, it says in the text, would lead the people of Israel to go back to having the house of David provide their kings, and then they would kill Jeroboam. That's how it starts. And in due time, what we find is that Ahab gets a wife for himself from Sidon, 
from Tyr, a princess from Tyr, a princess of the Phoenicians. Because the golden calves, those only work for so long. And at a certain point, people who are critical of the administration will say, yeah, but you made those golden calves. Those aren't really the gods who brought us out of Egypt. You made those. But then when the Yahwists, so-called, the worshipers of Yahweh, the prophets of Yahweh are the primary ones decrying the idolatry of the kings of Israel and the people of Israel. They're also, by default, being associated with the kingdom of Judah and the threat to the political power and the separateness that is so convenient to the kings of Israel as distinct from the kings of Judah. The prophets of Yahweh are regarded as essentially political opponents. Not just that there's a religious difference, but that there's a political difference, almost like how Republicans and Democrats trace their conflict back to the Civil War. And the Democrats want to hold on to power where they have power, and they react always manipulatively, but very often also violently against those who speak the moral framework and the vision of the good life that is common to their political opponents. If that means acting in a rash and incoherent way, in a way that's totally inconsistent and doesn't make sense with their other propositions, it doesn't matter to them because what they mean by democracy is they're continuing to hold on to power where they hold on to power currently. What they mean by Trump or Trump supporters being like cult followers is something I think very similar to Ahab and Jezebel moving against the prophets of Yahweh and moving against anybody who would criticize their ties to Phoenicia and their ties to the worship of the ancient Canaanite deities. That's what's in view here in 1 Kings chapter 19. But in our time, if you were to say 27 of the top 30 crime-ridden cities run by Democrats don't just have a certain political affiliation, they also have a common religious orientation, as in the culture of the cities is not just predisposed towards voting Democrat, but it's also, generally speaking, predisposed to being less religious or the kind of religiosity you'll find in the cities is much more interfaith dialogue. It's much more, let's blend our services together with people who are Buddhists or Sikhs or Muslims or Hindus or pantheists or Wiccans. Let's just have everybody get together and we'll have a very generic idea of God, which everybody can just adapt to their own purposes, the purposes of their own religion. That in itself is a certain kind of religion or a certain approach to religion that is much more typical of the cities. And is it possible that the crime stats, the violent crime stats and the murder rate in the cities is closely tied to that religious landscape in the cities? To where even when Christians go into the cities that are very progressive, very liberal, very left, in order to have a license to preach the gospel, have a church, preach, hold services, they have to be very careful that they're not offending the sensibilities of the city with regards to abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, 
certain economic policies that are favored by the Democrats. You can't be overly critical of the welfare state or legalized abortion or drag queen story hour, or else you might find that your church draws the ire of the city mayor or the city council or the local city newspaper. You might find that you start getting threats from people in the community and they start wanting to vandalize your property because they associate the presence of your church in the community with a destabilization of the paradigm on which the political situation depends. The religious paradigm serves as the foundation, in other words, for the political paradigm. And that is to say, too, that when you get a strong influence of the evangelical Christian church in the cities, pushing its way out into rural America, flyover country America, as in it's the big churches that support and start Christian publishing companies or media companies or Christian colleges and universities, when that gets to be the case and that becomes the defining influence on even the Christian churches in the rural areas, I think we find very similar type rhetoric being employed against the more rural Christians in America as is employed against the rural voters in a civil sense. That is, let's talk about them as though their problems are particular to them, and let's not attribute any of the problems that we identify or that we see in their jurisdictions to what's happening in the cities where we are ministering and how we don't ever (laughs) threaten those sacred cows. We don't challenge those sacred cows. We don't criticize them. We don't preach against them. We don't call for repentance with regards to them. Or if we do, it makes national headlines and it's a big controversy. And maybe there are calls for resignation. There's definitely hate mail. There's definitely some long, difficult conversations among those who donate, who tithe, who give offerings, who cut checks, who support the work of the ministry, as it's said. But then within all of that, keep in mind that with regards to 1 Kings chapter 19, another very important detail is often overlooked if we talk about Elijah at all. The fact that he spends most of the narrative that pertains to him in hiding, not surrounded by the masses of devotees to Yahweh. You don't know that Elijah's ministry is successful because he pastors a church of thousands that has an outsized influence over the region as far as worshipers of Yahweh go. No, no. He is in hiding. He's out in the wilderness. Nobody can find him, as a matter of fact. They don't even know where he is, except he just pops up every now and then when God tells him, okay, I want you to go to such and such a place. I want you to speak with so-and-so. I want you to do this now. In other words, when God's the one who tells Elijah to go into hiding and to go underground, and God's the one who selectively here and there tells Elijah to come out now and confront so-and-so publicly, call all of Israel together along with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and we're going to have a showdown to see whether Baal is God or whether Yahweh is God, and whoever is God, worship him alone. It's God who is preferring in that circumstance, in that condition, 
the rural over the urban, as it seems to me. Not that the urban doesn't matter, but that the urban is a captured institution. It's captive to Ahab and Jezebel, and by extension, the religion of the Phoenicians, by extension, the worshipers of Baal, the prophets of Baal, those who have been rewarded and been empowered on the basis of their identification with Phoenicia and the cult of Baal. When we're talking 7,000 alone who God has reserved for himself, who have not bent the knee or kissed Baal, odds are high that those 7,000, for all the same reasons that Obadiah had to hide and then was afraid for his life when it was made known that he had hidden the 100 prophets of Yahweh, odds are high that the 7,000 who God has reserved to himself besides Elijah have also been living very under the radar, not participating in the public life of Israel under this new paradigm, because to do so would be either a death sentence of their spiritual life in reference to Yahweh, or even to be in public life and to be seen very conspicuously not participating, not bowing, not kissing the image of Baal would be the precursor to a death sentence for them physically. As in, they would paint a target on their back, being seen to be non-compliant. You can say, ah, I think maybe you're conflating these things too much. And I say, no, I think we have a lot of, no temptation has seized us, but that which is common to man, which makes us want to create psychological distance. We want to say that these things are so totally unrelated that there's no application to our day because it's a disturbing thought to admit that this is first and foremost not a political conflict in the United States of America today. It's a spiritual conflict. It's a conflict of visions that at root is to do with who is God. Is Yahweh God or is Baal God? Another way to think about this too is, again, going back to how Ahab greets Elijah as a troubler of Israel. And Elijah turns it right around and says, I have not troubled Israel. You have and your father's house that is the house of Omri. In our day, we call this spin. And that is to say that when there are negative consequences for idolatry, those who prefer the idolatry and are trying to actively purge the worship of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the ones who are trying to purge that influence from public life and from the economy and how it operates at all levels, the ones who are trying to purge that from the academy and have been very successful, unfortunately, over the last century, the ones who are trying to purge that from political life, except on their terms, every time there's a negative consequence for their decisions, they say it's the fault of the Christians, the conservative Christians, the conservative Christians who are politically engaged, either serving in office or voting in those who serve in office. It's their fault. If there's no answer to that, then what comes as a natural course is persecution. If you say these people, let's say, for instance, since I was talking in our last episode about French Huguenots and John Calvin's inspiration for writing and publishing and revising Institutes of the Christian Religion the way that he did, the persecution of the Huguenots was predicated on their being heretics and troublemakers and not just that they were challenging the basis of the authority of Rome over 
Christian life and practice, but that they were, by extension, challenging the basis for King Francis of France's ruling and reigning over France, that he was the most Catholic king of France. He responds by ordering the persecution of the Huguenots in France because at root, what's being claimed is these guys are a dangerous cult, rejecting sound doctrine, engaging in all manner of corrupt practices, and they're a danger to my rule, my reign. In due time, I believe, this is my own personal theory, probably not just mine, but I haven't seen anybody else or heard anybody else espousing this, so I'll say it's mine until somebody, I think that you would not have had the French Revolution with its very aggressive anti-clerical, anti-aristocracy, anti-monarchy violence, if not for the persecution of the Huguenots. And that being a conscious decision that damaged all parties concerned. It damaged the Roman Catholic Church and those who were the most diehard defenders, as they saw it, of Roman Catholic purity. It damaged the aristocracy in so far as they participated in the persecution of the Huguenots in their holdings or in their regions. It damaged the monarchy and the credibility of the monarchy, both in the minds of the Protestants who were being persecuted by their own king. And also, once the Roman Catholics started to have some misgivings and maybe started to feel some remorse and to feel guilty about participating in these things or these things being done around them, even if they weren't participating, it damaged the credibility of the monarchy in France in the minds of all of the subjects, all of the citizens. But then also with this, it damaged the descendants of the Protestants. If they stuck around, maybe you know the next generation wasn't so sold, perhaps possibly it was like, well, I don't know. It made everybody altogether who was not part of the aristocracy, who was not part of the established Roman Catholic Church in France, who wasn't connected to the monarchy, much more dissatisfied. And so then that is to say, too, that it can start with a rather mercenary and hard-nosed prosecution of religious differences. Say, for instance, Ahab and Jezebel following in the footsteps of Jeroboam in making golden calves. Uh, Well, let's do one better. Let's violently persecute those who follow after Yahweh. In due time, it leads to a collapse of the respect for the one who is king and his queen and the status quo. It makes it much easier for somebody who would usurp, who would carry out a coup to justify in the minds of those who would join in a coup, actually carrying it out and being supportive of a new government on the other end of it. But then that's exactly what the folks doing the political persecution and the religious persecution have in mind as well. That's part of what fuels their persecution and their spinning of these things the way that they do. They realize they have hitched the legitimacy of their government to a certain religious persuasion. And if that religious persuasion is threatened, then so also the basis for their political decisions is threatened. And so they have to, in order to be consistently on guard, defending their right to govern, their mandate to govern, they have to run interference between the public 
and the public's perception and the religious convictions that would undermine their religious claims, chiefly espoused by, in the case of 1 Kings chapter 19, a prophet of Yahweh in the time of the persecution of the Huguenots, perhaps a John Calvin. But in our day, who? Who speaks up and says, this is wrong and there needs to be repentance because these are not just political differences. There are sins that are being committed and that are even being affirmed as good. And those who do those sins are being celebrated and honored and rewarded and preferred. And those who object or abstain, who disagree, who dissent, are being punished. We need to repent of that. That's sinful. That's wicked. That incurs judgment. That brings judgment on our nation. Who says that? And how are they related to? How are they regarded to? Aren't they related very much the same way that we see in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19? As troublers of our democracy, troublers of our unity. If public health mandates are being pushed, then you say all of the bad effects that we need to focus on are coming from the folks who say they don't want to get the vaccine, they don't want to stay at home, locked down. They don't want to wear two masks, three masks. They don't want to social distance anymore. If it's the Christians getting together in their churches for regular fellowship, well, then we say that it's the Christians who are anti-science. And this is why they shouldn't hold, say, for instance, the House Speakership. This is why they shouldn't hold governorships. They shouldn't be mayors of cities. They shouldn't be presidents of colleges and universities. They shouldn't be the heads of corporations, they shouldn't be actually even in positions of authority in their own churches. In fact, we should get new leadership in the churches that will be qualified based on what will be palatable to the religious landscape of the cities. But then that is to say, we want those who offer social services first and foremost, not those who call for repentance of the sins of the city, those who call the city to repentance. Now, let's not talk about the sins of the city. Let's talk about this at a state level if we can blame shift and we can make this actually the fault of our political opponents and by extension, their constituents, because that's who we really are opposed to. It's the rural folk. But then what do we find in 1 Kings 18 and 19? We find Elijah told by God to go into hiding. And only as an exception coming out of hiding to do some confronting. Say to so-and-so, do this, go here. In the chapter we just read at the top of this episode, we find Elijah being told he's going to anoint a new king over Syria and a new king over Israel. And he's going to appoint a successor to himself as prophet over Israel. No temptation has seized us, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful No temptation seized the people we're reading about in the biblical text, except what is common to man. But who is God? Who was he? Who is he? Who will he always be? Just two more stories, real quick, in brief though. One from the Daily Wire, Luke Rosiak reporting December 23rd. Daily Wire sues Biden DOJ for concealing records on its partisan riot squad. This is part of what we have to contend with in our day. The Community Relations Service, CRS, is a federal agency within DOJ that the Trump 
administration unsuccessfully sought to defund. It simultaneously advocates for left-wing causes while also purporting to offer unbiased mediation, including between local governments and left-wing agitators. It describes itself as America's peacemaker for, quote, communities facing conflict based on actual or perceived race, color, national origin, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, or disability, end quote. This summer, it attempted to thwart the will of voters in a deep red county in Virginia by pressuring the local school board to have the federal government mediate whether the school district adopts Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's transgender policies. As justification, CRS cited community tensions, alluding to the fact that a leftist activist had been arrested for an alleged crime while trying to stop the policy's adoption. The move appeared to reward criminal behavior and subvert democracy through which voters had already chosen a school board who represented their views. A spokeswoman for Yunkin said CRS was acting as a political arm of the Democratic Party. After the Daily Wire in August obtained an email showing a CRS conciliation specialist, Hannah Levine, emailing the Roanoke, Virginia school board to offer support and services, it filed a FOIA for further emails from Levine. CRS did not even acknowledge the request. In October, the Daily Wire filed a second FOIA requesting broader information about CRS's operations. It again did not reply. America First Legal served as lawyers for the Daily Wire in the complaint, which was filed in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. In the complaint, AFL attorney Jacob Meckler asked the court to, quote, declare that the records sought by the Daily Wire's requests must be disclosed, end quote, and, quote, award the Daily Wire's attorney's fees, end quote. Ian Pryor, a senior advisor for America First Legal, said the Biden administration's actions in Virginia were eye-opening. Quote, it was eye-opening to see the Department of Justice try and interfere with a local Virginia school board's decision-making on Governor Yunkin's model policy, especially given that Attorney General Merrick Garland's infamous memo was a contributing factor in Yunkin winning election and proposing the very policy at issue here. It is even more concerning that the Department of Justice has refused to even acknowledge a Freedom of Information Act request which seeks to get to the bottom of their decision, end quote. Now, why is this significant? In part because you have to recognize those who are agitating for leftist causes in local communities have an ally at the federal level due to the leadership of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And what is being transformed at the local level is not just how we talk to each other, But the basis for our moral judgments, the claim is a moral claim, and that moral claim is downstream, or it's a consequence of a view of man. Who is man? Who is God? What rights do you have? Where do your rights come from? Who is God? If they purport to be there to mediate, but they mediate selectively on the basis of where is a left-wing agitator willing to commit a crime to disrupt the will of a local community by means of empowering their elected officials. And then they don't answer the questions asked of them by a journalistic enterprise like the Daily Wire. That's not all that surprising given what is being said on MSNBC about rural Americans being cult members who will vote their craziness if Democrats don't stop them. It's not so surprising, given what we've seen come out of the ATF with regards to rule changes that in one fell swoop can declare millions upon millions of law-abiding American citizens who own firearms, felons, 
it's not all that surprising when you look at the narrative driven regarding the states with the worst violent crime statistics being governed by Republicans, but the cities with the highest crime rates being governed by Democrats. All of this is of a piece with a preference for the Democrat Party ruling the roost and purging those who disagree, those who dissent. But again, this is not just a desire for power, and it's not just an economic situation, and it's not just a difference of philosophies that happens by accident. These are consequences of a view of man that either comes from Scripture, it comes from the Word of God, it's informed by the Christian faith and the tradition of Western civilization, or it comes from Marxism. It comes from the French Revolution, having thrown out babies with bathwater, and ultimately having been fueled by a philosophy which said that man is only going to be liberated when he is liberated from organized religion and external constraints, which is to say external constraints on his moral compass, which is to say when God says do and do not, this is what is good. This is the way walk you in it. That is enslavement. The ideas of the French Revolution that took hold because I think the French Huguenots were so violently persecuted prior to that, those ideas of the French Revolution exported around the globe a notion of God as an oppressor, the oppressor. And so we have among the Democrats in the U.S., decreasingly progressive policies, increasingly transgressive policies, which have as their whole aim and objective to liberate us from the constraints of a Christian conscience and Christian scripture and Christian tradition, Christian morality. In a local community, when an agitator, when an activist is willing to break the law to try and stop elected representatives from enacting the will of the people of that community to reinforce some vestige of Christian morality, Western tradition, the American tradition, this DOJ, this CRS as a subset of the DOJ comes in and applies leverage to make sure that the ideals of the French Revolution went out. And that is what they're concerned about when they say things like Chris Matthews was saying with Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough on MSNBC. That's what they're concerned about as a threat to our democracy, that the ideals of the French Revolution essentially would be defeated and would be rolled back. And why is that important? Because so much of our international landscape right now, our geopolitical landscape is predicated on, are you a adherent to the progressive Democrat or transgressive Democrat, as the case may be, and I think it's more and more the case, view of the good life. Will you advance the transgressive and pantheistic neo-pagan narrative in your country? And will you help us to impose that on more and more of your neighboring countries? Yes, well then, we have friendly relations, but not so dissimilar do we have friendly relations with foreign nations on that basis compared with Israel under Ahab and Jezebel having friendly relations with Tyr, 
or tire. Back to the Daily Wire. The October FOIA asked for documents listing basic information about all facilitations, mediations, training, and consultations held by CRS. It holds facilitations like Dialogue on Race and Bias Incidents and Hate Crimes Forum. And it performs consultations where the federal government attempts to shape local government's actions, such as holding a session on addressing perceived racism and use of force, where the result of agitators allegedly throwing objects at the police was a recommendation for diversity and inclusion training for city staff. The agency says its mediators are impartial and that, quote, during the mediation process, CRS does not advocate for any party nor any particular issue, rather the mediator is focused on delivering a fair and unbiased process that assists parties to develop agreements, but it simultaneously advocates for leftist causes and portrays conservative policies as bad. CRS says it wants to, quote, create inclusive and equitable communities for all and run, quote, training programs such as, quote, engaging and building relationships with transgender communities, end quote. Again, again, here we have what in times past would not have been recognizably the function of government to normalize transgenderism or to affirm transgenderism or to say that this is a top priority for your local government. But then when neo-paganism is informing the idea and the conception of what is good that we would reward and what is evil that we should punish, when neo-paganism, very much like the worship of Baal and Asherah, is the guiding light of the people who run these federal agencies, the ones who appoint the ones who lead these federal agencies, what we find is the animosity is along very religious lines. And again and again, it will be disproportionately the Christians in rural areas who are more conservative, who are painted as the bogeyman. They're painted as the transgressor who need to repent essentially. Repent of what? Repent of their worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Repent of their commitment to the truth and authenticity and inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. As one last story, and this will be what we close on in this episode. Let's turn our attention to one more Not the Bee post, this one from Holly Ash, December 13th. And we may have discussed this just a little bit in passing, but I'm going to play for you the audio for a trailer for a film called Civil War. The title of this post at Not to Be is A Trailer Just Dropped for Civil War, where Texas and California have teamed up. Nick Offerman is president, and journalists are the good guys. Without further ado, I'll play cut two here, and then I have some thoughts. Take a listen. 19 states have seceded. The United States Army ramps up activity. The White House issued warnings to the Western forces as well as the Florida Alliance. The three-term president assures the uprising will be dealt with swiftly. Let me know if you want to try anything on. I guess aware there's like a pretty huge civil war going on all across America. We just try to stay out with what we see on the news. Seems like it's for the best. Citizens of America, the so-called Western forces of Texas and California have suffered a very great defeat at the hands of the United States military. Mr. President, do you regret the use of airstrikes against American citizens? 
They're moving to D.C. today. We need to go down there. They shoot journalists on sight in the Capitol. Every instinct in me says this is death. Blood it. Every time I survived the war zone, I thought I was sending a warning home. Don't do this. But here we are. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Well, you're American, okay? Okay. What kind of American are you? You don't know? <laughs> the Western forces will reach the White House on July 4th. Oh, my God. Get in the car! Get in the car! We're gonna hang back. I'm not hanging back. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Go, 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 go. God bless America. I won't spend a lot of time <laughs> unpacking this, but if that sounded like the voice of Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, that's because in this film, he plays the president of the United States and you hear it, right? The Western forces of California and Texas are united somehow. Somehow that happens. I suppose all the people leaving California to move to Texas, they link up with their conservative friends and family back in the state of California, and they overthrow the People's Republic of California's current government and make it super Republican, probably. But you also hear Ron Swanson's character as president sounding very sinister. All of the shots of him are dark. And the questions being posed about his killing American citizens, and is he okay with that? Does he feel bothered at all by that. Journalists getting shot in the Capitol on site. All of that is presented in such a way in our current political environment, our current cultural moment in the United States. All of that's presented in a way that inescapably <laughs> draws one to the conclusion that this is a kind of dystopian picture of what Democrats are afraid will happen if a Republican gets back into the White House, if a Republican who is like Trump, if not Trump, like Trump, gets back into the White House, be afraid, be very afraid, it'll be civil war. And that is to say, too, that the Democrats, the left, they are visualizing civil war. And this is an imaginary portrayal of civil war, but there's a lot of rhetoric right now about the potential for out-and-out -out conflict in our country, whether that's a plausible scenario that they're presenting that California and Texas team up and that's the big threat. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. Maybe it's actually not the Patriots in California and Texas. Maybe it's all the Californians who move to Texas and all the illegal immigrants who come over the border into Texas. They flip the state blue and then there's a Republican, a bad, bad Republican in the White House who wants to subvert democracy and declares open war on California and Texas. And maybe that's the narrative. I don't know. But the point isn't that scenario 
being plausible or implausible. The point is that there's a association of the rhetoric of God bless America, one nation under God, and Republicans talking that way with something dark and sinister and hostile and oppressive. And that's the vision casting of the left in Hollywood, in the corporate news media, in big tech, that there's something dark and sinister about America being a self-consciously Christian nation, having Christian values, a Christian conception of what is good that you would reward, what is evil that you would punish or restrain, what you would honor, what you would dishonor being predicated on Christian truth, on the truth of scripture. That is what alarms the Democrats almost more than anything else. But then that is to say, we need to get our timeline right here. Uh, Imagine at the last here, you're transported back in time to the 800s BC, and now you're in Israel, and you're watching and you're listening as there's discussion of Elijah, and if there are still any prophets of Yahweh, they're almost like Jedi, right? They're, they're in hiding, they live very much under the radar, but they're the ones who are blamed for the troubles, all the troubles in the empire, all the troubles in the region. And the narrative timeline, because we've gotten our talking points from the Phoenicians, from those who still worship the old Canaanite deities, the timeline, according to them, starts when the Israelites come in and dispossess the rightful inhabitants, their rightful rulers of this region, the ones who worship Baal and Asherah and all those other Canaanite deities. It's Yahweh who's the bad guy. It's these Israelites who are the interlopers. And to perform the absolving rituals correctly to make peace again with the original inhabitants, in order to pursue social justice, what they have to do is they have to purge worship of Yahweh because it all started, all the trouble started with the worship of Yahweh. That's where the conflict originated between the Israelites and the Canaanites. It all at root was conflict between those who were these diehard religious fanatics worshiping Yahweh and the innocent just minding their own business, living there like they always had as far back as they could remember, Canaanites of various tribes. Start the timeline then and say, we're going to go back to the way things were before you followers of the Yahwist cult started imposing your morality on everybody. And then suppose that every now and then you get a bubbling up of conflict. In fact, you have a division of the kingdom. It was a united kingdom of Israel under Solomon and before Solomon under David. For decades, it was one united kingdom. And then next thing you know, here's this little pocket, the kingdom of Judah ruled by the son of Solomon. And here's the rest of Israel. And the rest of Israel wants to distance itself, or the king of Israel wants to distance himself and the people of Israel from worship of Yahweh, because the worship of Yahweh needs to be a polarizing distinction between Israel and Judah. And there's civil war between Israel and Judah after a fashion, even though they're two separate kingdoms, and that's from God. And God says that is from him. Don't fight against your brothers and your countrymen. This is from me, this division. And yet they do anyways. 
And in due time, perhaps the loss of life, the loss of peace, the loss of prosperity embitters even those who were undecided initially in Israel to where the generations coming and going, they're very receptive to the ideas of Ahab, that he's going to get for himself a Phoenician princess as queen. And yes, we are going to build a house for Baal, almost like a embassy. And yes, it's her custom. It's the custom of my wife's people that as queen, she will preside over the worship of her gods. And so we have to make room for the prophets of Baal. And now there's conflict because some are still dedicated to Yahweh and they call for repentance of this, but it's political now. It's political and you can't call for repentance of the worship of Baal. You can't call for removing the evil from Israel in the form of this idolatry because to do so is a threat to the political situation for Ahab, not just within Israel, but also the relationship that Israel has with Tyre or Tyre. They have conflict now in Israel so as to protect the special relationship that Israel has with the Sidonians or the Phoenicians. And in that context, the murder of the prophets of Yahweh commences in earnest. And it's open season on the prophets of Yahweh. Purge them from public life. Tear down the altars to Yahweh. We'll claim that they shouldn't have been built in the first place because the worship should be in Jerusalem anyways, but that's just a cover because they're trying to institutionalize the worship of Baal and Asherah. That's the new religion. And then suppose, if they made movies back then, those who were very supportive of Ahab and Jezebel decided to make movies like this, envisioning a civil war in Israel, wherein somebody claiming that we need to get back to God as a nation, as a people, started going after the spokespeople of Ahab's regime, started going after the spokespeople for worship of Baal. Now, all of that, you may say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm comfortable with us mixing together. But then I think for all the same reasons that we're uncomfortable with potentially calling somebody who's contemporary today a Jezebel, but previous generations, and even in the New Testament, there are allusions to Jezebel associating all the false prophets with Jezebel. Just like we're uncomfortable with the idea of calling a woman, referring to a woman in our day as a Jezebel, we're uncomfortable with the idea of drawing too many comparisons between America today and Israel in the 800s BC. Not because the shoe doesn't fit, but because if we have to put those shoes on and walk around in them, we don't like where that would take us. In part, or maybe even in whole, because we know, whether we want to admit it or not, that if that's true, what's coming very close after an open recognition of these things being so is the violent persecution of those who love God. And that scares us. We're not ready for that. We don't know what we would do in that case. Meanwhile, the other side is trying to project onto their political and religious opponents what it is that they themselves are gearing up to do. We have to do it to them before they do it to us, is what they're telling themselves. 
and have a piece with this too, is even just in recent years, having seen the optics of radical left-inspired riots in American cities, sponsored by, organized by Black Lives Matter, funded and organized to a great extent by George Soros and George Soros-linked organizations, George Soros having gone on record in interviews saying that he thinks of himself as a god, he acts like a god, he likes to play god, and once he embraced that, it made everything a lot clearer and a lot easier. Well, that's a chilling thought, particularly when you realize how many of those 27 out of 30 of the most violent, criminal-infested cities in the U.S. have George Soros-funded district attorneys, handpicked by George Soros, you have to understand that this is not totally abstract. Now, the good news, because <laughs> that's all rather bleak. I readily confess, I admit. The good news is all of the same feelings that start coming over us when we start thinking down that road and we start imagining, okay, what if that is what's coming down the pike is the violent persecution of Christians in America by the radical left, drunk on the images that they themselves have perpetuated via movies just like Civil War, via the rhetoric of the likes of Chris Matthews calling rural Americans cult members who will vote their craziness unless the Democrats stop them. As disturbing as all that is, all of the feelings that we feel and are gripped by, I believe we see Elijah grappling with and Obadiah as well in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Obadiah has tried to quietly, under the radar, protect 100 prophets of Yahweh, hiding them in caves, feeding them, making sure they have plenty of water so that they're not murdered by Jezebel's order. He fears for his life as a result of that being made known to Jezebel. He's probably been warned that he's on thin ice, but he's okay for now, as long as he doesn't do anything more like that. What have I done to deserve you saying, go tell Ahab that I'm here? Here in 1 Kings 19, Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. He fears for his life. He runs for his life. He despairs of life itself. He asks God to take away his life, and he says, I'm no better than my father's. He despairs because he thinks he's the only one left. He's the only one who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal or kissed Baal in Israel, and his days are numbered. Just like God is able to protect Elijah and hide him and provide for him, so also God is able to hide us, provide for us, protect us. Just like God is able to intervene and arrange things so as to defeat the best laid plans of Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, God is also able to defeat the best laid plans of whoever it is, whoever all however well-funded they may be, whoever it is that is trying to orchestrate the destruction of our country spiritually and trying to purge Christian faith from our country. God is able to defeat their machinations. And that's something that when they get too full of themselves and they get tunnel vision, thinking in purely political terms, 
purely material terms they forget, but God is still God. God was God. He is God. He always will be God. And at a time of his choosing, in a manner of his choosing, he will get representation and he will see that he gets glory and that his ways are shown to be correct and tell the righteous it will go well with them. If this continues to ratchet up and up to more and more heated rhetoric, increasing contempt for particularly Christian conservatives in flyover country, America, if it ratchets up and up and up and up, where they can't reach for strong enough rhetoric, they can't claim anymore that we're just unwell or that we're mistaken or we lack a quality education like they got in the big cities on the coasts. If they start having to reach increasingly for imagery to whip themselves into a frenzy to get out there again once more with feeling and secure their grip on power with films like Civil War, even then, we don't need to despair. We may struggle with some feelings of loneliness, sadness, frustration, confusion, and we may at times be afraid that our days are numbered. How can we possibly have shelter or food or clothing that is adequate? How can we possibly function if this just ratchets up and up and up and up? And so we don't want to admit that it's going there or that it's to an alarming extent already gone there in the past couple of decades. Now that we live in negative world where there's increasing hostility to public expressions of Christian faith that would be recognizable at all to two millennia of Christians who went before us. But we don't need to be in denial of the material facts of our situation in order to embrace the peace that we have in Christ. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayers and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts. That's our hope. That's what God tells us to be about. We can't forget that even as we are distressed, looking around and seeing how many are systematically trying to purge any remembrance of the things of God or of who God is. They're trying to distort and twist who God is and what he's called us to to suit their purposes. However much that may distress us, we can't in the midst of our distress forget that God is able to preserve a remnant for himself, and he always does. He knows who are his. We just need to be focused on being in him and being faithful. This too shall pass. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.